We've done it 400 times. 400 times. 400 times. Let's do it 400 times again. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio. It's Friday, February 5th, 2016. And yes, this is episode number 400. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Here with me in the studio at the controls is our engineer, John. You gotta have faith. And joining me from Studio C back in McKees Rocks, PA, is Cliff the Z-Man Zlotnick. Hey, Joe. How's everybody doing today? Good day, Cliff. This week's guest will be Jeff May. We're going to talk a little bit about a couple presentations he gave at the Indoor Air Quality Association conference last week. And at halftime, we're going to bring in Lou Harriman to preview the health risks of indoor exposure to particulate matter, a conference coming up uh, next week that I'll be attending and reporting from. Before we get to that, let's stop and thank our marquee sponsors. And thanks to our newest sponsor, Particles Plus. Particles Plus engineers and manufacturers feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Learn more at www.particlesplus.com. Count on us. John Don Products, or restoration and abatement contractor shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products services. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. All right, let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IEQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IEQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show, you can text in the answer live via your computer. I'm sorry to report. There was no correct answer to last week's trivia question. The IQ Radio Trivia question for Friday, February 5, 2016, show 400, has been sponsored by Triska, the Restoration and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Check out their website at trsca.org. Now for today's trivia question. Who is usually given credit for making the first microscope? Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. Jeff May is the principal scientist of May Indoor Air Investigations up in Tingsboro, Massachusetts. He's also the author of four books on indoor air quality, including My House is Killing Me and The Mold Survival Guide. Jeff has been investigating building problems in homes, schools, and offices for over 25 years. And has a, he's also examined by microscopy over 35,000 air and dust samples. He's a nationally recognized speaker on indoor air quality topics, a member of the Indoor Air Quality Association, the Pan-American Aerobiology Association, American Chemical Society, and the New England chapter of the AIHA, among others. He's a certified indoor air quality professional through the Association of Energy Engineers, a licensed mold assessor in Florida, and he holds a Bachelor of Arts from Columbia College in Chemistry and an MA from Harvard University in Organic Chemistry, also has served as an adjunct professor in the Department of Work Environment at the University of Massachusetts, Lowell. We uh, look forward to having Jeff back again. He's been on several times. We've got some music. 
Inspector Gadget. Good day, Jeff. Do we have you on the line? You do. Good morning. Good morning. Yes. Great to have Good morning. you. Good <laughs> morning. Just, okay. <laughs> Just barely. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. It's been a while. I, John was looking. I think it's been like five years, John, if you recall correctly, the uh, last time you joined us. But we're really happy to have you back. We got a chance to connect down at the IAQA conference. You did a great uh, couple great presentations down there. Um, and we're going to start with... A question that Cliff Cliff actually got to attend both of your presentations. Um, one of the questions he had was, "What type of mold is used for allergy testing, and what's wrong with that concept?" Well, you know, as you know, there's there's uh, you know there are millions of different molds. I suppose there's you know a lot fewer molds that are present <coughs> indoors, but typically, you know, what they've tested for is Altanaria alternata, and that's primarily, at least in, in the Northeast anyway, that's an, you know, an outdoor mold. And because each mold has many, many different allergens, I mean, there could be 10 or 20 different allergens, proteins in a, in a particular mold spore. Uh, <clears throat> it, what, what pe you can't test for all of them. They used to test with extracts, but they don't really, so they use these monoclonal antibodies they te they test it's called alt one and uh they just test you for one antigen and so I, I you know they can't test you for enough different things and it would take too long it'd be like a pin cushion so you know they just test you for this one thing and if you're not allergic to alt one then they consider you not being allergic to uh to mold and that would have serious implications when, when people think they're not allergic and maybe they are to a different type of, uh, of mold. Oh, yeah. I, I actually had a, I had a client with uh, hypersensitivity pneumonitis, and they did the standard uh, panel. Now, that's not really, you know, it's a allergy, but <clears throat> it's the same idea. They tested her against, uh, you know, some particular species of aspergillus, or blood serum anyway. And, you know, she was mildly positive. And then I sent samples of the aspergillus that was growing in her furnace. Her furnace had been underwater, and nobody thought to clean it out. And she was highly, uh, you know, highly reactive to that, you know, to the mold that was growing in the system. So it made a huge difference when they cleaned it up. So it can be that specific. It can be, you know, one particular species of mold that someone's reacting to, and they can never really test you for that. You know, one of the presentations you did was on mechanical systems and um, the, the types of, you know, sick building problems that can be uh, associated with mechanical systems. It was called Mold and Mechanical Systems, Leading Cause of Sick Building Symptoms. I'm curious on that particular case, since you brought it up, was cleaning enough with this sensitive person to, to get them to the point where they could then go back into the home? Yes, the, I don't know. I, you know, I didn't actually. I wasn't involved in the actual cleaning, but I don't think it was that you know complicated uh, a system. But what I often see, you know, they, there'd be fibrous lining material inside of uh, what's happened in a you know in a rooftop unit, let's say, and you can see from looking at the fibrous material around the air conditioning coil that it's been vacuumed and it looks perfectly clean, and. If you take a, a sample from that lining material, it can be full of spores and hyphae. So, you know, it's not necessarily a visible problem. And in those situations, the lining material really has to be removed and replaced. Cliff. And obviously not with fibrous lining material, but something with a solid surface, either, you know, aluminum-coated uh, fiberglass or something like, uh, you know, Armorflex closed-celled foam. Cliff, let me turn it over to you. Thanks, Joe. Well, thanks for joining us, Jeff. Uh, what's the difference between macro and micro fungi and their effect on wood and framing lumber? <laughs> yeah, that's a really that's a really big one. I mean, you see people getting completely hysterical about you know mold and comments about how mold's going to destroy the building and destroy structural components, and you know it, it's it's simply not not true there. You know, there's two large groups of fungi, I and mean, there are lots of them, but two, you can separate them into at least two 
categories. One is microfungi, and the other one's macrofungi. So the macro means big, and those are the kind of fungi that you can see in the woods, you know, with the mushrooms and uh, <clears throat> the spore-forming structure is big. It's the mushroom cap. And uh, then you have the microfungi, and those are really the molds. So when you look at a patch of mold, it just you see maybe some black or brown, you know, some colored surface. But when you look under a microscope, you can see that the you know, the spores are all organized in a particular way. And the, the spore-forming structure is called a conidiophore, and that's comparable to a mushroom cap, except that it's a you know it's a microscopic thing. And the big big difference between the wood decay fungi and the micro fungi is the fact that really very few of the of the microfungi are wood decay organisms. So, you know, you could have the whole interior of a space covered with mold. It doesn't mean that there's going to be any kind of a structural issue whatsoever. The, uh, the microfungi don't have the enzyme systems required to break down the cellulose that's in wood, and they also cannot break down the lignin, which is the other major structural component in the wood. So all mold is, is just growing on the surface. And Jeff, what what are these actinomyces that, that um, you know, we hear about in, in indoor environmental quality investigations or indoor environmental quality issues, and why are they important to indoor environmental quality? Well, the, uh, I guess the, the, the actinomycetes can cause hypersensitivity pneumonitis. They require, you know, very wet conditions. So, for example, when they were having a lot of um, HP in the uh, automotive industry, they, they traced it to uh, worker exposure to uh, aerosols, bioaerosols from the cutting fluids, because the cutting fluids are, are you know, have water in them. So that's the environment that these organisms can grow in. And they, they are kind of strange. I, I'm not that you know, sure about the sort of biological sort of classification, but when the spores that actinomyces produce are the size of bacteria, but they, they look and they grow like mold, so they actually have hyphae. And they require very, very high moisture content. So typically you'll find them on uh, foundation walls growing on dust, or you can uh, find them uh, in uh, humidifiers, so they'd be floating, like a little white floating colony on the surface. And as I said, you know, they're very, very small spores, so they can get into the alveoli, and that's why they cause the hypersensitivity pneumonitis. And because they're so small, none of the labs that do the analysis can actually see them. And so, you know, you have to use oil immersion, high-power microscopy to even see them. So, uh, like I stain my samples pink with acid fuchs, and, and sometimes I'll see these little pink blotches. They don't have any size or shape, and so then I'll go to you know from 400 to 1,000 power, and suddenly I can see all of the you know the spores and hyphae. So they're definitely present, and you know people can be getting sick from them, and it's not something that the lab would pick up at all. Would you? I'm just curious. You 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 use a um, microscope quite a bit in your investigations, and I I do as well. Um, my one of my guys that helps me out is pretty good with microscopy. How easy would it be to teach, you know, a, a typical indoor environmental quality investigator out there to be able to do some microscopy in the field? to help them with screening samples, you know, they can always send a, a few to the lab to verify, but how difficult would it be? How long would it take to teach someone to do what you do in the field with microscopy? Not, well, it doesn't take that long, actually. I, I've given classes where, you know, I rented microscopes and, and had, you know, 10, 15 people in a class. Everybody has their own microscope and just go at it for a couple of days. And a few of those People, that's all they really do now is air quality. So uh, they do send their samples out. Some people do their own samples, but yeah, I mean, the I mean, the really it takes a lot, you know, long. It takes a lot longer to get into the sort of subtleties. But for the more obvious things, you know, you could 
I mean, I think some of the labs train pigeons to identify stachybotrys under the microscope. They just <laughs> drop a peanut, in the, you know, every time they identify a stachyspore. But um, it is, I mean, it's not that difficult. See, but I guess the difficulty would come in really distinguishing all the different, you know, the different types and, and, and sort of counting things. But, uh, you know, to determine, let's say, if something is just mold on a wall, uh, or, you know, let's say I often see fiberglass that's black and you have no way of knowing whether that's soot or, you know, mold growth. So you can take a sample, you can know in two seconds whether or not it's, you know, mold or not. But the pro- I've done that a couple of times where I, you know, I took a microscope to a job where it was some emergency situation and I'd be there at midnight. But typically, you know, it, it just it takes too long to do, you know, a lot of microscopy on site. But they do, there is one small microscope that Terry Brennan uses. I can't, I can't think of the name right now, but that, you know, it's a small thing. You can just stick it on a surface and do some, you know, identification. So the answer to your question is it's not that difficult for the sort of, you know, simple stuff. Okay. And I'll, I'll ask Terry about that. That's a, an interesting point. Cliff? Uh, yeah, it's called Peak. It's a Peak microscope. Peak. Okay. I think it's P-E-A-K, yeah. And it can go up to, uh, the, the, the the best one is the 400. I mean, that's what you, you know, 200 might help a little bit, but 400 uh, would be, uh, you know, that would be better. That's about the lowest you can go, I think, to see things. You know, Aspen are pretty small, about 2 micrometer. Is that about the lowest you can start to evaluate that? Well, I'd say, yeah, 200. I mean, you don't see a whole lot at 200, but I, I, for example, when I look at a, a sample, I'll start, you know, sometimes at 200 just to get a general picture of what's going on but uh you know to really see things clearly you got to go at least at least 400 and some of the labs do you know do it at 600 the problem is the the more the higher the magnification you use the the longer it takes to you know to look at the sample so it's uh you know it's a toss-up between how long it's going to spend versus you know how much you see cliff yeah jeff could you opine on the leading cause of sick buildings well, yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I guess I'm somewhat prejudiced. I mean, I have, you know, I've got a lot of allergy problems myself. So, you know, I'll go into buildings and, you know, everybody's running around, they're working. And so, and, you know, I, I can tell I have a problem. So, uh, you know, my, I, I would say that it's the mechanical system. Uh, you know, the air, condi- air conditioning is really it. I, I Googled one time air conditioning and sick building, something like that, and, you know, there wasn't a city or a country in the world that didn't have a case of sick building due to air conditioning. And, and, I mean, the reason is very simple. I mean, first of all, all the air in the building goes through the mechanical system. And if you're in a part of the country where, you know, or any country where you cool the air to the dew point, you get water, you now have a wet coil. And, uh, you know, if there's any dust at all on the coil, there's going to be microbial growth. And then the air coming off the coil is at 100% relative humidity, so mold can start to grow at, you know, let's say 80-plus percent relative humidity. So you get all that mold growing on surfaces, and then you have the condensate pans that get full of, you know, all kinds of microorganisms. So, And then in the wintertime, uh, then the, the those those pans dry out, and then you're just blowing all this sort of dust around. What... Um what type of filter do you recommend for for your clients on a uh, forced air mechanical system? Well, since you know the real problem with all of these you know mechanical systems is the is the dust and the high humidity or the water. So if you keep the dust out, then you're not going to have all of these problems. So the uh, most of the biodegradable dust particles are you know bigger, so maybe bigger than, you know, 10 microns, say. So you have uh, cornstarch granules, pollen grains, skin scales, pet dander, cellulose fibers. I mean, they're all, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 microns in size. So if you don't filter out the soot and the soil particles, which can be, you know, less than a micron in size, it's not really that relevant. So I... ASHRAE says MERV-8, 
you know, minimum efficiency reporting value filter for air conditioning. And MERV-8 is probably adequate. I recommend a much, you know, the deeper four-inch filters, the pleated media filters that have a MERV-11 value, you know, rating. And, you know, that's really more than adequate. And the only problem that you get into with these, any of these filters really, is the fact that there's, you know, any kind of bypass. So you'll often find somebody's got a decent filter, but air is getting around the filter. So good filtration with <clears throat> no no air bypass, and you'll have a clean system, and it'll be healthy. Cliff, let me turn it back to you. Uh, thanks, Joe. Uh, Jeff, what percentage of air duct cleaners clean AC coils, and where did you get this statistic? <laughs> yeah, not enough. <laughs> Actually, I got it from... It was that's interesting. It was a you know NATCA National Association of Duct Cleaners. They they surveyed their members to see how many uh, of the members cleaned uh, cleaned the air conditioning coil, and only forty percent did. And uh, you know I always thought it was just strictly a question of uh, you know of profit. Like if you're a blow and go duct cleaner, you know you come and you go. You just hook something up to the duct system and you suck it or whatever and you know, you're out of there. If you're going to clean a coil, that's a very, very labor-intensive thing, and you cannot possibly make the same, you know, kind of money for the time. But I also found out something very interesting. I talked to one of the duct cleaners um, this year, and he said that that he didn't do. They get a lot of referrals from air, you know, heating uh, HVAC companies for for jobs to clean ducts, and but the HVAC uh, technicians do the duct cleaning, so they didn't want to compete with the HVAC people, so they don't do the coil cleaning. So that was a new sort of wrinkle in the <laughs> in the whole situation. Hmm. <clears throat> and, and Jeff, with with respect to UVC lights, um, they're known to be antimicrobial. What what other effects, lesser known, may UVC lights have on HVAC components? Well, well, the uh, the UVC light is very, very energetic, and so, you know, it'll destroy any kind of, any, you know, most organic compounds, and that includes uh, glue. So uh, there's been some situations where the ultraviolet light was irradiating the, the filter, and it destroyed the glue, and it allowed the fibers to get into the air and basically defeated the... Um, the, the the purpose of the filter, but it it's actually you know go it's a lot worse than that. I mean these you know ultraviolet technology has been around for you know for I don't know probably you know almost a hundred years and they and you know it's used to kill viruses and bacteria in the air and the reason it's effective the way they've used it is with let's say lights at the ceiling in schools or hospitals and you have no airflow basically there's just a little bit of convection so the residence time is long and it's going to take a few seconds to many seconds to really to kill anything so <clears throat> they, they use that ultraviolet principle though when they put in these uv lamps into into heating and air conditioning systems and you know i just sort of <laughs> reviewed this thing let's say that the air is going through a duct at a you know a few feet per second so there's not enough residence time. So if you on a carrier on their website has a calculation, and in order to irradiate air and successfully to kill microorganisms, you need a UV tube that's about 150 feet long. Hmm. So most of these tubes they put into systems are only, you know, four to six inches. So they they tell you it's going to clean the air. But it will disinfect the air, but it can't. So it's completely useless. And people throw, you know, $800, dollars away on these things. The other, <coughs> the other concept that they use is that you can irradiate the coil and the pan to, uh, you know, kill microorganisms there. And commercially, that works beautifully. They have, <coughs> you know, let's say you have a flat panel coil, and you got you have four or six, you know, lamps the length of the coil. Everything gets irradiated. It works beautifully. You know, you can irradiate the pan, but the commercial, of the homeowner units are a couple of inches. They don't irradiate anything. Hmm. 
Cliff? Jeff, what parts of the HVAC system are most difficult to remediate from fungal contamination and why? <laughs> well, I, I suppose wherever you have fibrous lining material, uh, it becomes impossible. I guess the worst situation is, you know, is contaminated duckboard because, you know, that really has to be replaced. Commercially, there are some systems that, fi- you know, FiberLock has some coatings for... Uh, for fibrous lining material that can encapsulate it, but uh, I would guess that's one big problem. The other one is if you have mold growth in a uh, in a flexible duct. Uh, one particular situation that I see that's you know problematic, at least you know in my area in New England, some homes have uh, hot water heat, baseboard or whatever, and then <clears throat> they have air conditioning with the air conditioning unit in the attic. So all of the ductwork is in the attic. Now, in the wintertime, you've got condensing conditions in the attic. It's very, very cold. And if all of the supplies and the returns are open, you get convection flow, and warm air goes up into the some of the ducts. Cold air comes down elsewhere. And if it's you know cold enough or damp enough in the house, you get condensation. And I actually looked at one uh, one home where the guy was running a, a humidifier in his bedroom, and the trunk lines had water dripping down all of the all of the supply lines that had mold growing on the surface of this flexible ductwork. Everything uh, <clears throat> everything had to be replaced. So flexible ductwork, uh, if it's really dirty, has to be replaced. So that's the other. Uh, you know, difficulty in terms of duct cleaning, uh, you know, for getting 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 the material all out of that type of duct. I don't think you can meet the NATCA standard because of the it's so fragile. Jeff, I'm curious with with respect to again going back to identifying different types of contaminants. What are some of the common indoor contaminants that are regularly misidentified as microbial contamination by inexperienced inspectors or microscopists? Well, I would guess that the most common one is spray paint spheres. So whenever you spray paint anything, you get a lot of sort of aerosol mist. And these are very, very small particles, like maybe, well, <clears throat> 3 to 10 microns. And they're, you know, typically they'll be, you know, full of titanium dioxide particles, which are submicron particles, but if you don't look carefully at one of these particles, it looks like a black spore because the titanium dioxide is opaque. So whenever I have a question about one of those particles, I will turn the, the stage microscope light off, and then I use a flashlight, a very bright light from the top, and look at the particle, <clears throat> and if it reflects white light, it's not a spore, it's a paint sphere. So that is certainly, you know, one big one. And I, I think another mistake that a lot of counters make is that they misidentify uh, basidiospores as penasp spores. So the penicillium and aspergillus spores are just small and round, <clears throat> and a lot of the basidiospores are, are, are the same. They, they are different if you look carefully, but if you don't look carefully, it's easy to misidentify them. I hardly ever see uh, penicillium aspergillus spores outdoors. There are other parts of the country where they're, you know, plentiful, but uh, it's easy to misidentify that, and it's very important because the largest source of indoor air quality issues, with you know, with respect to bioaerosol anyway, it's exposure to aspergillus or you know penicillium indoors. So, if you misidentify some basidiospores outdoors, you can come up with an outrageous number. I mean, there could be tens of thousands of basidiospores in the outdoor air, and indoors you won't find that many. But if you call them penasp outdoors and you see a few penasp indoors, you'll say, you know, there's no, there is no problem. Jeff, I got we're, we're almost to halftime, and I've got two more quick questions on on mechanical systems. One is the connection between heat recovery ventilators and mold problems. Can you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah, that's one of my sort of favorite gripes because, I mean, buildings, you know, they keep making 
buildings tighter, and I, I can see a day when they're going to be requiring heat recovery ventilation. And uh, the heat the heat exchange core in, a, in an HRV is pretty small. I mean, it's less than a foot you know, square. <clears throat> and so the that's where the filter is, and the, you know, the filter is typically not very uh, efficient, and often they're not uh, attached properly. And so uh, with minimal filtration and lots and lots of dust, remember that the what you're doing is you're sucking in outdoor air 24-7, and you're sucking in house air 24-7, so you have a lot of biodegradable dust particles, and you need very, very good filtration. <clears throat> And most homeowners never read the directions. They never change the filters or clean them. And so you end up with mold problems because in the summertime you're drawing in very uh, humid air. And then in the wintertime you're taking maybe, you know, moist air from the shower, from the bathroom, and passing it over this freezing cold air so you get condensation. And unless you can accommodate that, you know, that moisture, then you may get some wet dust and mold problems. So in the end, I would say most of the heat recovery units that I've looked at had mold in them. Not a lot, but mold. And in one case, actually it's happened in two cases, I think, where the, you know, we turned it off and people, all their health, all their allergy symptoms disappeared. Hmm. One more quick one before we go to halftime. Uh, what type of label should be affixed to mechanical systems, air handlers? <laughs> well, no, I, I guess nobody does. But, I mean, one of the things that I had recommended, actually, I guess, I don't know if I put that in the talk or not. I think I did. But you did. But really, I did. That, you know, they, they have warning labels on ladders. They have warning labels on cups. You know, if it's got hot coffee, you could burn yourself. And yet, here we have, you know, all of this air conditioning equipment. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there getting sick from the mold that's being aerosolized. So, uh, you know, they... I think it's up to the industry to to tell people that you know that they have to maintain the mechanical equipment, and if they don't, that they could you know that there could be consequences. Like you know, if you you know you plug something in and you're holding on to the you know the the live prongs, you're going to get a shock. I mean, you think of things today that have all these warnings, but you know, our air conditioning and heating system does not come with any warnings. And I think, and the same thing actually with heat recovery or energy recovery ventilation. I mean. It has to be made clear to people that there are consequences for neglect. So you could put something like annual maintenance required in big red letters or something like that, or semi-annual, whatever. <laughs> yeah, but I would be more, you know, more serious. You see, look at all of these warnings and show you people falling off a ladder. You know, that it needs to stay really, you know, in words that you can, you know, this can somehow, in some, it doesn't have to be, you know, some paraphrase of this can make you sick if you do not maintain it. Great point. We will be back with the second half of our show with Jeff May after we thank our sponsors. And we've also got a brief segment with Lou Harriman at halftime. We're bringing Lou on. We're going to talk a little bit about a conference that's coming up next week. And thanks to our newest sponsor, Particles Plus. Particles Plus engineers and manufacturers feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Learn more at www.particlesplus.com. Count on us. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. We use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Check them out at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, or restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, 
a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at iaq.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products or services. Okay, we're back with the second half. Before we get back to Jeff May and talk a little bit about unusual indoor bioaerosols, we've got Lou Harriman on. Lou, um, we want to talk to you a little bit, maybe give us a preview about the conference next week on the health risks of indoor exposure to particulate matter. And uh, Lou, do we have you on the line? Yes, you sure do. Great. Like, always good to be here. Yep. Great to have you with us as always, Lou. What's what's the who's who's having the conference and who's sponsoring? Can you fill us in a little on that? Sure, it's a uh, uh, it's a webcast that I'm going to be listening to next week that I thought uh, your listeners might 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 be interested in. It's uh, being held at the National Academies of uh, Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, Washington D.C. And uh, it's sponsored by uh, uh, a couple different organizations, uh, but primarily the United States Environmental Protection Agency, and also some support from uh, uh, indirect support from the Sloan Foundation's uh, uh, indoor biome effort as well. It's uh, going to be a real cast of all stars, I'll tell you. Um, but to be more specific, Joe, it's going to be uh, held on Wednesday and Thursday of next week. In other words, that's Wednesday the 10th and Thursday the 11th. And it'll begin at uh, 8.30 in the morning and then go till 5 o'clock on Wednesday, go to noon on Thursday. And I can give you the URL if you want that. Well, let's, I'll, what <laughs> I'll do is I'll have John put it in the chat box. But um, are you speaking or are you going to be there? No, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to be there. Um, uh, Terry Brennan, with whom I've done a great deal of work, is going to be there, and he's one of the session chairs. Um, but uh, uh, but I'm going to be listening in as anybody can. It's a it's a public uh, public workshop, a free webinar, and we had actually I had provided a link in the show announcement today. So if you look at the title of the show at the bottom, we talked about this free webinar, and uh, just give us one real quick. Why? Why do you think this is occurring, Lou? What, what's the what's the uh, push for doing a particulate matter conference like this? Health and particulate matter. Well, yes, I imagine many many of the listeners will remember the National Academies uh, study that uh, helped us out with the issue of damp buildings and human health uh, now more than uh, more than twelve years ago, and this is the recognition of the fact that. Uh, we know that uh, fine particles are a problem indoors, uh, perhaps in some cases even more of a problem than they are outdoors. But it's not a problem that's been well recognized. It's not a regulated uh, uh, problem by any means. So this is an effort, I think, to, uh, uh, to understand the nature and the extent of the problem and then begin figuring out what to do about it, uh, what, sort of, uh, what sort of things can be done in a low-cost way, and what sort of things are appropriate to do to uh, to mitigate the difficulties, the health difficulties that come from uh, from high concentrations of fine particles indoors. So it's uh, it's it's moving on towards <laughs> better understanding of all the health issues that we have indoors. We got things in some ways much more under control outdoors than we do with the problems indoors. So this is an effort, a non-regulatory effort to uh, to begin understanding what we ought to be doing about these about these issues and then maybe raise some awareness on top of that very much so and I, and again where where there are no laws associated with this it's important that the public understand what the risks are and what they can do about it and so that's 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 I think what this effort is is about and uh, great people going to be giving seminars <laughs> it's yeah. going to be a, a really wonderful uh, a group of people uh, Bill Nazaroff uh, um, very uh, leading uh, indoor air quality and physicist uh, um, from California is going to be uh, the session chair, and then you have people from uh, from the Harvard School of Public Health, from Illinois Institute of Technology, from uh, from Stanford uh, and from University of Texas, really from all over the country that have been looking at this kind of problems for for decades, and it's an exciting time because there's so much more that's been learned about the nature of the indoor particulate that we have to deal with. 
Well, thank you, Lou, and thanks for joining us and uh, letting listeners know about the conference. I will be attending for IAQ Radio, and we'll be reporting back next Friday. Haven't lined up the, the guest yet, and maybe we'll have a few, but I hope listeners can join in, and I'll at least give you a good overview of what happened over that two days. And if you can, jump in there and uh, listen in over the two days. It's free. All right. Well, let's get back to our interview. Again, thank you very much, Lou, as always, for joining us. Let's get back to Jeff May. Jeff, we, we had a second paper you presented at the IAQA conference, and it was, um, let's see if I got the title right here, The Common and Underrecognized Sources of Indo-Bioaerosols. Now, the first half of the show, we talked a good bit about a common one, I assume, which is mold. Um, let's let's talk a little bit more about, first, the the idea of um, what are some of the, you know, under-recognized sources of indoor bioaerosols? Well, I guess uh, let me just sort of comment also, uh, you know, about as in just not necessarily a bioaerosol specifically, but just on the, on the uh, you know, that particulate matter program that's, that's coming up. I mean, the, I would find that the probably one of the really common indoor uh, particulate uh, you know, submicron particles that are in homes come from burning, uh, burning candles, jar candles. So, and you can also get that from combustion oil, oil um, combustion equipment if it's not dented properly. And uh, you know, those well, those particles are small enough to get into the alveoli and actually pass directly into the bloodstream. So a lot of the really small particles, they come in and then they simply, they're suspended in the air and then they go out again, but there are definitely health <clears throat> effects from the exposure. And uh, just to sort of widen that, there's actually, there's a, a researcher in uh, Norway who's, who's looked at, at soot particles to see if there are any allergens on them. And they've actually found that soot particles in homes with cats uh, actually have cat allergen on them and uh, they found also pollen allergens on on soot particles so they may not be large obviously the soot particle is very small there's not a large quantity of allergen on the other hand if you're breathing in a lot of the soot that was on the cat I suppose you might get enough of that allergen so <clears throat> I call these uh, you know surrogate allergens and 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 our su- surrogate allergen can be can be just about anything. I mean, I always, you know, I I say just to, you know, picture picture a uh, like an you know an, an air conditioning condensate pan with all the you know all the dust in there. There's going to be rust particles and drywall particles and you know maybe some lint fibers and skin scales and it's all sitting in this sort of microbial muck. And then the you know in the, in the heating season all of that muck dries out. And some of those particles get aerosolized, so they become. Well, I think they become, and I mean nobody, unfortunately, nobody's really looked at this or proven this, but I mean they become surrogate allergens. So you you could see, you know, and I have seen this actually. I was in a in a, a computer server room that had a, a humidifier on it because they humidified the air to 50% to keep uh, prevent sparks from occurring. So the uh, there was nothing in the air. Uh, except for the rust particles that were coming from the pan in the humidifier that was, you know, that was corroding. And people were having air quality issues there. These particles are, you know, some of them are less than a micron. So there's microbial growth in a, in a water reservoir, and then there are particles that get wet, and then the allergens <coughs> dry out on the surface. Another way, and this is only recently I was talking to Eva King about this when it first sort of hit me that, you know, people talk about dog dander and cat dander and exposure to allergens. Well, dander, skin scales, dog skin, cat skin, it's just, it's a protein called keratin. And it's a very, you know, it's a structural protein and it's not allergenic at all. So it's actually the secretions of the, sebaceous glands that secrete the allergens that are then covered or coated on these dander particles. So the actually pet dander particles are these, you know, surrogate allergens. They're big, you know, they're 25 microns, but they really don't, the, the, the actual skin itself, 
is not the allergen. It's the it's the water soluble allergen on the surface that that causes the <clears throat> the allergy response. So just about anything can be allergenic, uh, you know, bioaerosol or even inorganic, you know, drywall dust. So uh, I mean, let's say you've got mold growing on drywall. The mold is secreting enzymes, and the drywall, the gypsum particles, they're very small. They may have some enzyme on them, and you may be allergic to that particular enzyme and so have health symptoms as a result of that exposure. But there's no way to measure that. We have absolutely no way to figure any of this out. You know, I want to go back for a moment because I got an interesting email that I think is is something we should mention. We were talking about... Um, misidentified you know uh, contaminants under a microscope and tony tony havoc actually sent an email saying that starch grains including from gloves can also look like mold spores as can fern spores and pollen and oil etc so it, it seems like there's a lot of different things that can be misidentified uh, well yeah I, I would say if you're you know uh, if you're really inexperienced you you know you could call a starch granule, a mold spore, but the mold spores, really, they're, the sizes, they're, they're all pretty similar, you know, size and shape. Starch granules can vary in size quite a bit, and you can, I actually use, I have polarizers, if you use uh, two polarizers, and you, you know, put one at the, at the light under the stage, and another one at the, you know, at the eyepiece, and you rotate that, there, there, there's, um, it's called optical dichroism, I think. You get color changes, so you can always you can tell uh, starch granules. Plus, if you want to, if you use iodine, you can just add a little bit of iodine to a slide, and all the starch granules turn black. Yeah, if people know to do that, I guess. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I got another question here, Jeff. Uh, what is a common problem among fans, blowers, and other air movement type devices? Well, I, I guess anything, you know, any, anything that moves air is going to collect dust particles by impactation. If you look at a fan that's been running for a while, the blades are all, you know, covered with dust. You look at any kind of, you know, grills where there's airflow. So wherever you've got airflow, particles accumulate. So you've got, um, <clears throat> there's some pretty uh, obscure things. I mean, I think I, <laughs> my favorite one is the refrigerator. I mean, we've had... You know, we've had clients who just like cleaned their refrigerator and all their health symptoms went away. So you, like a refrigerator collects an enormous amount of dust on the coils and also if it's a frost-free refrigerator in, in the condensate pan. Now, if you're allergic to cats and somebody had a cat in the, in the apartment before you, you're going to be exposed to that cat dander forever from the refrigerator. If... There's mold, or usually there's yeast and bacteria. Sometimes mold <clears throat> as well growing in the in that condensate pan. Then that also gets aerosolized, and you can have you know allergy symptoms from that. You know, I actually the way I discovered this was that you know I have asthma, and I was sitting in my <clears throat> sitting in my kitchen, and you know every once in a while I'd start to cough, and I never could figure it out. And one day I associated that every time I had symptoms, I was in the refrigerator turned on. And you know, I took the in those days the the condensate pan or the drip pan was in the front. You just pull the grill off, and there was the pan was full of water, and there was a moldy onion sitting in the in the middle of the water, and I cleaned that, and that was the end of my problem. Huh. Interesting. Let me, uh, Cliff. Let me turn it over to you because we're going to run low on time, and you got quite a few questions. I want you to pick out the best ones. Okay. Um... Let's see. First of all, what do dust mites do? <laughs> what do dust mites do? <laughs> they only do. They do three things: they defecate, they fornicate, and they masticate. That's it. Okay. That's, That's it. What a life! I've had you know Ken Garing from Thermostore used to have uh, have uh, whenever he had a you know booth at a show, and he would always he have dust mites for people to look at. And he was kind enough to give me some, you know, some colonies. And, uh, and you know, that's what I used to sit up at night watching dust mites, see what they do. I think you need to get a life <laughs> No, I don't. I love, you're right. People tell me that all the time. I love, you know, I just, 
I love what I do, and it's it's just it's it's a, you know there's, there's this hidden world. It's just so you know it's so fascinating. I mean, I've been known to watch this one eye on the Super Bowl and one eye on the dust mites. You know? <laughs> How many different dust types mites, of dust? Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Cliff. Uh, speaking of dust mites. Uh, what bedding in a home is a really underestimated reservoir for dust mites? Well, let's see. What well, mostly, I mean, they, you know, they. I guess it's somewhat actually the the opposite in a in a sense. I mean, you know, you there's all this nonsense on the internet about your, you know, there's ten pounds of mites in your mattress. I mean, thank God it's wrong. I mean, I and I I sample when I do an investigation in a home, I always take a sample, a dust sample from a mattress. And I would say that probably less than half of the mattresses have, you know, maybe even, you know, significantly less have a really serious <clears throat> mite problem. So it's not, you know, it's it's certainly one of the biggest causes of asthma, but I find, you know, people sitting in chairs, uh, you know, cushioned chairs for uh, hours at a time, they'll get dust mites. In the you know in their chairs, I mean dust mites basically, they the dermatophagoides dust mites that cause you know most of the asthma they they eat skin scales so there's a ton of food and so the only thing they really need is you know is body moisture or moisture from from the air so I've actually you're gonna love this get a life I was in bed one time with my wife and I I was under the covers I wanted to measure the relative humidity and I had I was under the covers with, with a sling psychometer <laughs> and a flashlight. Can you imagine? Oh, God. Oh, your poor but, wife. There was, one, there was one reservoir that you mentioned in the class or in your presentation oh. that I never really thought of. Oh, well, the, it, yeah. The, well, the, I mean, I did. I find uh, dust mites in... Well, where, you know, the thing is, there'll be mites wherever there's moisture. I mean, I had one guy sent me a sample from his... Uh, dust from around his sink, and there were um, storage mites, acari, you know, living under the steel uh, rim. There was, you know, food and dampness under there. Um, I found mites in a soap dish next to a sink, uh, even in the fiberglass of a, uh, of a, you know, the fiberglass insulation around a, uh, a dishwasher. So, you know, wherever you've got dampness, you've got mites. And, I mean, I think there's a huge problem with Mold-eating mites. I mean, there are you know many many species. I must find at least a dozen different kinds of mites in in homes, and wherever there's mold, there's mites 100 percent in all the time. I think you know, you know, the, one the, you... the one that you mentioned was <clears throat> pet bedding. I never really thought <laughs> about it, but you know, it's since I came back home, I had my wife wash. Oh, the good dog's for you. Bed. Yeah. <laughs> sure. yeah, no, yeah, I sampled. You know, I I take samples from pets I'll ha- I mean I'm you know allergic to a lot of them I have the homeowner pet you know the animal and then I'll take a sample and you know you'll find dust mite droppings on animals because it's in the bedding dogs get asthma I mean in some dog beds there are so many mites that there are actually there's something called um, oops tyrophagus putrescescens it's a big mite and it actually eats the smaller dust mites and and dogs get allergic to the to the um, to that it's called tea putt, so you, you know dogs get asthma. So people don't wash or clean their dog beds for you know 15 years some, sometimes. And you know wherever you've got that you know moisture from an animal, body moisture, you're going to get mites. Jeff, do the are they the same type of mites that uh, you find in a bed, a dog's bed, as you would find in a human bed, or is it a different species? Uh, you know, I'm not. You know, I would say it could be the same because they're just eating, you know, the house dust and skin scales. So the the real difference in mites is with the, the mold, you know, the mold eating mites. Wherever you've got mold, or you know, you have plants, uh, you'll get all different, you know, different kinds of mites that are um, <clears throat> they're not the skin scale eating mites. Jeff, what is but the? What about, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah. Oh. Um, I think there are a couple that we need to touch on that are real important. What are bird bloom particles? <laughs> yeah, that's another good one, right? Well, the uh, <clears throat> birds give off, uh, you know, skin scales the way uh, you know other animals do. They're very, very weird looking. Their character, they have very odd shapes, and they have ho- like holes in them, very strange. And that's the bird dander particles. But then birds also give off bloom 
particles, and those are very, very small particles. They're the size of mold spores, uh, you know, one to three microns in size. And they, it's a white powder, basically, when a bird flaps its wings, you can sometimes see that. <clears throat> and in homes, like I was in one place, they had, you know, a lot of parrots, and everything had white dust on it, and it's all bird bloom. The purpose of the bloom is to repel water. It's sort of hydrophobic, and it keeps the wings dry. So, uh, But because they're one to three microns, they actually can get into the alveoli, and they serve uh, as surrogate allergen. In other words, the, the, the bird dander or bird bloom particles are keratin, but they have the bird uh, <clears throat> antigen on them, and that gets into the lung. And a, a hypersensitivity pneumonitis is called allergic alveolitis in England. There are a lot of bird keepers. I, I forget the percentage, but it's pretty high that actually get very, very sensitized <clears throat> to birds. Now, where this becomes important for your average person is because <clears throat> people love feather pillows. And I would say, that, and, and quilts, I would say that about, I'd, I'd take a pack sample, I call it. I just tap a pillow or tap a quilt, and I collect the aerosol with my Burkhardt sampler, I look at that with a microscope, and I would say that about half of the feather-filled items that I test are uh, the feathers have never been cleaned, and so all that bird bloom comes out. And <clears throat> I actually had a, 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 a just a correspondent, really, a fellow who became deathly ill with hypersensitivity pneumonitis. I call it, or people call it duvet lung. His daughter gave him a very expensive quilt for Christmas. And by February, he couldn't breathe anymore. Hmm. Interesting. Cliff, keep going. I, I, you're, you're picking out the ones I, I'm interested in. Okay. Um, let's see. What causes wet wool carpet to smell like a wet dog? <laughs> you mean know, a wet sheep? <laughs> a wet sheep. A wet, wet dog, sheep. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think. I mean, this. I were. You know, I wondered about that for. Years and I think from doing all this microscopy, I finally figured it out that the, <clears throat> the the hair, the you know wool is hair. It's got a structure like a hair. So there's a cortex fibers in the middle. They're sort of rope-like fibers, and then on the outside of the hair, there's uh, cuticle uh, <clears throat> particles, and they're flat sheets. And it's kind of like an armadillo or something. They're like, all looks like scales. Yeah, scales on a fish. Exactly. They're all lined up. And so when you put, when you stain a sample, you, the first thing you see if there's a hair is that the stain goes underneath the cuticle. And, and so when I saw that, I realized that that's, you know, if, you're, if you happen to be a sheep, uh, you know, you, you're sweating and, you know, you're going through your everyday life, whatever you do. And, and so all this sweat and body odor is in the fluid on the surface of the hair. It gets underneath the cuticle, maybe it even goes into the cortex. I don't know. There's still spaces in there. And so now you, you know, you process that into a sweater or something, and, you know, you've still got all of that, the sheep that is stuck in between these little plates. So now when these things get wet, the water goes in, and then when it dries, it comes out again, and it brings some of those chemicals out, and that's what you smell. Jeff, I'm curious, what... Um... <clears throat> What is the connection between a thunder, or what connection may a thunderstorm have on pollen? <laughs> oh, yeah, another interesting uh, <laughs> connection that, you know, with, I mean, rain, you know, rain, and this was one of the talks at the um, IACWA meeting showed this, you know, they, some, you'll get rain, I think it was David Gallup, maybe, you know, you'll get rain cleans the air out, but then there are some <clears throat> organisms that release their spores in the rain, so other times you'll see a lot of spores, it's, you never know for sure, but but the, a lot of uh, pollen grains are big. They're maybe you know they're 50 microns <clears throat> bigger, and they they contain many many starch granules. And the starch granules are you know maybe five microns in size. And when you I've seen this in the lab, you know when you put stain on a, an outdoor sample, some of the starch granules explode when the stain hits them and all the little starch granules leak out. I have some really nice pictures of that. <laughs> and uh, and so 
their theory was, and, and it, was, it was noticed in Australia that after heavy rains certain, during certain seasons, they would have tremendous uptick in the asthma admissions in the hospitals and the emergency rooms. And they theorized that it was due to the fact that the water was causing these pollen granules to explode, and then they're releasing the, the allergen on very, very small starch particles rather than on the, on the, on the much, much larger pollen particle. Where in the bathroom um, may growing actinomycetes be found? <laughs> yeah, well, we, there's, I did show that one. <laughs> I showed that one slide. It was in a it was in a toilet on the third floor, and I guess that the, the, the toilet hadn't been flushed in a long time. So there was there were actinomycetes, but you know, they're, they're as I said, they really need very very you know wet conditions. So. It might be there. It might be in a in a humidifier, or you know, on a foundation wall. I don't know. Let's see. I, I don't. Surprisingly, I haven't seen them in uh, you know uh, air conditioning pans and that sort of thing. And it may be that there's just there's too much competition. <clears throat> I have seen actually mold with actinomycetes growing around it, so they're probably you know living off of digesting uh, you know the mold spores. What about in like a shower head? Have you tested shower heads often or checked them? <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, no, actually, I was just, uh, we, we got our water from the Merrimack River, and I think there's a horrible amount of stuff. I just spent a lot of money putting all this, you know, filtration in, but we would, I'd sometimes look up at the shower and there would be black tendrils hanging out of the, out of the holes. And it's a, uh, <clears throat> it's Oreobacidium mold. And, and bacteria. It wasn't uh, actinomycetes. And uh, unfortunately, I can't, I just, you know, I always, we have a coffee maker, and uh, I hate, I can't leave anything with water here because stuff grows in it. So I, it's uh, one of those, um, what do you call it? Those, uh, Keurig. Yeah, Keurig. So I turn it upside down to drain all the water out. So this morning I turned the thing upside down and all this black crud came out. I couldn't believe it. I, I just, you know, I can't, I, I can't help it. it. It grows around this, you know, the faucets. The, I took the aerators out of my faucets, and it was just all full of black. Hmm. Just gross stuff. Gross. And, and so, Jeff... You know, we're exposed to it all the time, and I guess it happens to be one of the things that doesn't bother me. <laughs> I, I've got one more. Um, what micron-sized particles are attracted by magnetism? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how you came up with that. I'm not sure. No, no. I, I, I think that you've already mentioned it. And it seems to me that you mentioned small metal particles, rust particles, and it would just seem oh, to me. Oh, I see. Oh, that, okay. That, yeah, that, that, they, that, oh, that, would, that would be the one. That's it. Yeah, okay. That, the rust particles carrying the, the behaving as, you know, surrogate allergens. So uh, I know there are people actually that sell. Some kind of purification equipment with you know magnets uh, around you know water supplies, but uh, I, mean, I, I don't think there's a, you know too much of an association there as far as you know the bioaerosol goes. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. It's been fascinating as always. It's been too long. We'll have to get you back again. And I'm I'm I talked to you about joining us for our event here in October. I'll talk to you a little bit more about that. October 10 through 12, we hope to have you join us for the sure. Healthy Building Summit. Okay, well, it's always fun. I love listening to you guys, and uh, again, I congratulate you on your uh, your awards. Well, thank well, you. Well yeah. deserved. Boy. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I've been very uh, happy to hear the feedback on that. Is there anything before we go that we missed that you'd like to add? Uh, no, I just, you know, I guess what I just wanted to say that, you know, having, you know, written all these books and everything from, you know, years and years and seeing what's out there. And I just, to this day, I'm amazed at really how little progress has been made. That's all. They're just, you know, the, in big buildings, people are still getting sick. They are still, you know, blowing bio slime out of, you know, drain lines and shoveling slock out of pans. And, you know, I, I just can't understand it that's all <laughs> well i i'd share your uh you know i share your 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 concern there i mean it's just i can't figure it out either why uh buildings aren't better maintained although 
I guess there are some. It's it's getting a little better in some areas, but um, we also have to keep in mind we always get caught into the bad ones. I guess. Yeah, that's true. But I, you know, it's just there's not enough there's not enough awareness, and you know, I think one of the problems. You know, I, I did some work in a, you know in a hospital. They didn't want to do. They confiscated all my testing equipment. They didn't let me test anything. They you know, they don't want to know. Like, if you can figure out what the problem is in a building and people are having health symptoms, then you've got, you know, legally you have, you know, liability there. So nobody wants to test. They don't really want to understand things. But, in you know, in some cases they're happy to clean everything up and, you know, just sweep it under the carpet, so to speak. Yeah, just don't let them know what it was, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> clean it up and put it away. Well, Jeff, thanks again for joining us. I look forward to talking to you and uh, hopefully yeah. getting together in October. All right. Thank you. All Both right. Of you. <laughs> All right. Thank you. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Jeff May. As always, a lot of fun, very fascinating information with Jeff. Also, thanks to Lou Harriman for joining us at halftime and uh, letting us uh, give us a little more information on that conference next week. I'll be at the conference, and then next Friday at noon, we'll be reporting back. I'm going to try like heck to uh, to get uh, some of the key speakers at that conference. I think Bill Nazareth would be great to get on here, so I'm going to try him first. But uh, Cliff, of course, thanks to you, and, and great um, thanks for the assist on putting a bunch of questions together after watching Jeff. No problem. And, uh, of course, to John, you got to have faith at the controls. We were a little nervous starting out, folks. The talk show was giving us a hard time, but uh, we're in. We're done. We had another great week. Thanks to our growing group of loyal listeners out there. Nice live audience today. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.